Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 8 from God's Smuggler, Brother Andrew with John and Elizabeth Sherrill. Chapter 8, The Cup of Suffering. Our train pulled into Amsterdam right on schedule. I got off with the rest of the crowd, corduroy trousers still squeaking, but carrying a suitcase that was considerably lighter than it had been going to Warsaw. I did not go directly to Witte. Instead, I went to see the Wistras in their new Amsterdam home. It was a beauty, a handsome brown brick house in a pleasant tree-lined street near the river. Parked in front was a shiny new Volkswagen, light blue, which Mr. Wistra had also written me about. I put my suitcase down on the sidewalk and tried the little car's door. Well, son, what do you think of her? I turned around to find Mr. Wistra smiling at me. He took me for a short spin around the waterfront. But enough of showing off, he said. You must tell us about your visit to Poland. So, for the rest of the afternoon, I told the Wistras about my trip. I told them, too, about the Bible verse that apparently had been given me in such an uncanny way. But how would I go about strengthening anything, I said. What kind of strength do I have? Mr. Wistra shook his head. He agreed with me that one lone Dutchman was scarcely an answer to that kind, to the kind of need I had been describing. It was Mrs. Wistra who understood. No strength at all, she answered me joyously. And don't you know that it is just when we are weakest that God can use us most? Suppose, now that it wasn't you but the Holy Spirit who had plans behind the Iron Curtain, you talk about strength. My return to Witte was coupled with a pleasant surprise. Neighbors dropped in all evening with questions, the basic ones all of us were asking in 1955 when travel behind the curtain was just beginning and the communist world was still cloaked in mystery. But finally the last guest clumped across our little bridge, and it was time for bed. I stretched, reached for my nearly empty suitcase, and started to follow Cornelius up the ladder to the loft. Just a minute, Andy, said Jitley. I stopped. We have something to show you. I got down off the ladder and followed Jitley into the room off the parlor that had once been Mama's and Papa's. Every inch of it was filled with memories. Bass's wasted form beneath the blanket. Mama, during the last month of the war, too weak to lift her head from that pillow. With the new room, for Papa finished over the shed, Andy, Jetley was saying, we've decided you should have this for your headquarters. I couldn't find my breath. It was my, my wildest dreams of bliss. I had never imagined a room of my own. In this small house, I knew at what sacrifice Ari and Jetley were making me this gift. Until you're married, Papa boomed from the living room. Papa was beginning to make frequent remarks about his 27-year-old bachelor son, just until you're married. I somehow found words to say, a room of my own. That night, after the rest of the family had gone to bed, I closed my own door 
and went around my room just feeling my furniture. Thank you for a chair, Lord. Thank you for a bureau. I would build a desk. I'd put it there, and I'd spend hours here in my room studying and working and planning. I had not been home a week before the invitations began to come in. Churches, clubs, civic groups, schools, everybody wanted to know about life behind the Iron Curtain. I accepted them all. In part, I needed the payment they offered, but I had an even stronger reason. Somehow I felt sure that through the speeches I was going to be shown what I was to do next, and that's what happened. A church in Harlem, where I was to speak, had posted advertisements all over town stating that my subject was to be how Christians lived behind the Iron Curtain. I would never have presumed to speak on such a topic after a three-week visit to one city, but at least the announcements did draw a crowd. The hall was jammed, and they drew something else, a group of communists. I recognized them right away. Some of them had been on the trip, and I wondered what heckling I might be in for. To my surprise, however, they made no move, either during the speech or during the question period that followed. But afterward, one of the women came up to me. She had been a leader of the Dutch delegation in Warsaw. I didn't like your talk, she said. I'm sorry, I didn't think you would. You told only part of the story, she said. Obviously, you haven't seen enough. You need to travel more, visit more countries, meet more leaders. I said nothing. What was she leading up to? In other words, you ought to take another trip, and that's what I've come to suggest. I held my breath. I am in charge of selecting 15 people from Holland to take a trip to Czechoslovakia. They'll be gone four weeks. They'll be students and professors and people in communications, and we'd like someone from the churches. Would you come? Was this God's hand? Was this the next door opening in his plan for me? I decided to put the question before him once again in terms of money. I knew I didn't have funds for such a trip. If you want me to go, Lord, I said in a flash prayer beneath my breath, you will have to supply the means. Thanks, I said aloud, but I could never afford such a trip. I'm sorry. I began to pack away the pictures of Warsaw I had brought with me. I could feel the lady staring at me. Well, she said finally, we can work that out. I looked up. What do you mean? About the expenses. For you, there will be no charge. And so began my second trip behind the Iron Curtain. It was much like my visit to Poland except that the group was smaller and I had a lot more trouble getting off by myself. I kept wondering what it was God wanted me to learn in Czechoslovakia. And toward the end of the four weeks, I found the answer. Everywhere we had been told about the religious freedom that people enjoyed under communism. Here in Czechoslovakia, our guide told us there was even a group of scholars paid by the state, who had just finished a new translation of the Bible and were even now working on a Bible dictionary. I would very much like to visit these men, I said. 
So that afternoon, I was taken to a large office building in the heart of Prague. It was the interchurch center, the headquarters for all Protestant churches in Czechoslovakia. My first impression was astonishment at the size of the physical facilities that the church was able to maintain. I was led into a suite of offices where scholarly-looking gentlemen in black coats sat behind heavy tombs and piles of paper. There were, These were the men, I was told, who had worked on the new translation. I was very impressed, but gradually some amusing facts began to emerge. I asked if I might see a copy of the new translation and was shown a bulky, much-fingered manuscript. Oh, the translation had not been published yet, I asked. Well, no, said one of the scholars. His face seemed sad. We've had it ready since the war, but he glanced at the tour director and let his sentence drift off. What about the Bible dictionary? Is that ready yet? Almost. But what good will it do to have a dictionary of the Bible and no Bible? Are there earlier translations? The scholar looked again at the tour director as if trying to decide how much he could say. No, he finally blurted out. No, it's very difficult, very difficult to find Bibles here nowadays. The tour director considered the interview over. I was shepherded out without having a chance to ask more questions, but the damage had been done. I had glimpsed the subterfuge rather than make a frontal attack on religion in this devout nation. The new regime was playing the game of frustration. It was sponsoring a new translation of the Bible, a translation that never quite got published. It was sponsoring a new dictionary of the Bible, only there were no Bibles to go with the dictionary. The next day I asked our guide to take me to the interdenominational bookstore at Jungmanova number nine. I was determined to see for myself how difficult it was to buy a Bible. The shop was well stocked with music, stationery, pictures, statues, crosses, books that were more or less related to religion. In any similar shop in Holland, there would be an entire section of the store devoted to different editions of the scriptures. May I see a red-letter Bible, please? I asked the saleswoman. By now, I had discovered that, between English and German, I rarely had any trouble communicating. The saleswoman shook her head. I'm sorry, sir. Those are out of stock right now. Well, how about a standard black-and-white edition? But these, too, it seemed, were temporarily unavailable. Ma'am, I said, I have come all the way from Holland to see how the church is faring in Czechoslovakia. Are you going to tell me that I can walk into the largest religious bookstore in the country and not be able to buy a single Bible? The saleswoman excused herself and disappeared into the back of the store. There was a rapid and somewhat excited discussion behind the curtain, followed by the sound of paper rattling, and then the manager himself appeared carrying a parcel already wrapped in brown paper. Here you are, sir. I thanked him. It's the new translation that makes Bible scarce, the manager said. 
Until that comes out, new Bibles just aren't being printed. It was our last day. Big plans had been made for us. We were to go out of Prague on a tour of model communities in the countryside. Then we were to come back for dinner, a press conference, and final goodbyes. I might possibly have suffered through the schedule for the sake of politeness, except for one thing. It was Sunday. It was my last chance to worship with Czech believers without having a guide hovering nearby. I had planned my escape for days. I had noticed that the rear door of our tour bus had a faulty spring. Even in closed position, there was a gap over a foot wide between it and the door jam. By holding my breath, as the bus pulled away from the hotel that last day, I was in the last seat. At every traffic light, I sized up my chances for slipping out that door unseen. But too many heads were turning, taking in the sights of the city. At last came a chance when every neck was craned forward, staring at the heroic bronze figure of a man on horseback. I never learned who it was, for as the tour director began describing it, I sucked in my breath, squeezed through the opening, and stepped down into the street. The air brakes hissed, and the powerful motor revved up. I was alone in Prague. Half an hour later, I was standing in the vestibule of a church I had spotted on a previous tour of the city, watching people come in. I was particularly anxious to see how a church could function without Bibles. Occasionally someone carried a hymnal, more rarely a Bible. But one thing that puzzled me, many people brought loose-leaf notebooks. What were they for? The service began. I took a seat in the back and immediately had a surprise. Almost everyone seemed uh, far-sighted. The owners of the hymn books held them out at arm's length, high in the air. Those with loose-leaf notebooks did the same. And then I realized the people with books were sharing them with those who had none. In the notebooks were copied, note by note and word by word, the favorite hymns of the congregation. It was the same with the Bibles. When the preacher announced the text, every Bible owner in the congregation found the reference and held his book high so that friends nearby could follow the reading. As I watched those men and women struggling literally to get close to the word, my hand closed over the Dutch Bible in my coat jacket. How much for granted I had always taken my right to own this book. I thought that I would never reach for it again without remembering the old granny in front of me now, standing almost on tiptoe, squinting as she strained to see the words in the Bible her son held aloft. After the service, I introduced myself to the preacher. When I mentioned that I had come from Holland, chiefly to meet with Christians in his country, he seemed overwhelmed. I had heard, he said, that Czechoslovakia was going to begin opening its borders. I didn't believe it. We've been, he looked around, almost imprisoned since the war. You must come and talk with me. Together we went to his apartment. It was only later that I learned how dangerous a thing 
for him, this was in Czechoslovakia, Czechoslovakia of 1955. He told me that the government was trying to get a total grip on the church. It was the government that selected theological students, choosing only candidates who favored the regime. In addition, every two months a minister had to renew his license. A friend had recently had his renewal application denied. No explanation. Each sermon had to be written out ahead of time and approved by the authorities. Each church had to list its leaders with the state. That same week in Bruno, five brethren were on trial because their church did not permit the naming of leaders. It was time for the second service at the church. Would you come and speak to us? He asked suddenly. Is that possible? Can I really preach there, here? No, I did not say preach. One must be careful with words. As a foreigner, you can't preach, but you can bring us greetings from Holland. And my friend smiled. If you wanted to, you could bring us greetings from the Lord. My interpreter was a young medical student named Antonin. First, I brought greetings from Holland and the West. That took a couple of minutes, and then, for half an hour, I brought greetings to the congregation from Jesus Christ. It worked so well that Antonin suggested we try the device again in another church. All in all, that day I preached four times and visited five different churches. Each was memorable in its own way, but the last one, most of all, for it was there that I received the cup of suffering. It was seven o'clock in the evening, already dark on that November day. I knew that by now the tour group would be really anxious about me. It was time I tried to find them. But even as I was thinking this, Antonin asked me if I would visit just one more church, where I think they especially need to meet someone from outside. So, once more, we traveled across Prague until we came to a small, out-of-the-way Moravian church. I was astonished at the number of people there, especially young people. There must have been 40 people between the ages of 18 and 25. I spoke my greetings and then answered questions. Could Christians in Holland get good jobs? Did anyone report you to the government when you went to church? Could you attend church and still get into a good university? You see, Antonin told me, it's unpatriotic to be a Christian in Czechoslovakia these days. Some of these people have been blackballed at work. Many have missed out on education. And that, he took a small box from the hands of a young man who stood beside him, is why they want you to have this. The young man was speaking to me very earnestly in Czech. Take this to Holland with you, Antonin translated, and when people ask you about it, tell them about us and remind them that we are part of the body too and that we are in pain. I took the box and opened it. Inside was a silver lapel ornament in the shape of a tiny cup. I had seen several of the young people wearing them, and had wondered what they were. Antonin was pinning it to my jacket. 
This is the symbol of the Church of Czechoslovakia. We call it the Cup of Suffering. When Antonin had left me at the hotel, I thought again about those words. I realized that we in Holland were an insulated were as insulated from the real facts of modern church history as were the Christians in Czechoslovakia. The cup of suffering was the symbol of a reality that we had to share. Right now, however, I had another reality to face. Where would I rendezvous with my group? They were not at the hotel, nor did anyone there know where the farewell dinner was to have been held. I went to a restaurant where we had eaten several times. No, Monsieur, the group from Holland did not eat here tonight. Well, is it too late for me to have a sandwich? Of course not, Monsieur. I had taken one bite of the sandwich when the door of the restaurant flew open and the tour director walked in. She glanced swiftly around the room, then sighted me. Her shoulders collapsed in an involuntary sigh of relief. But the next instant, her face flushed with anger. She fairly ran to my table, flung a bill at the waiter, and indicated the door with a jerk of her head. It was obvious that she did not trust herself to speak. Outside, waiting for us at the curb, was a government car, a long black limousine with its engine running, driven by a most unpleasant-looking man. He got out as we approached, opened the door, and then locked it behind us. Where were they taking me? Remembering the Hollywood version of such scenes, I tried to keep track of where we were going. And as I did, the humor of the situation came to me, because we were going to the hotel. Just before the car stopped, the tour director spoke her first words. You have held the group up half a day. We have called every hospital every police station. We finally called the morgue. Unfortunately, you were not there. Where have you been? Oh, I said, I got separated, and so I walked around. I really am sorry for the trouble I've caused you. Well, I want to tell you officially, sir, that you are no longer welcome here. Should you attempt to enter this country again, you will discover as much for yourself. And so I did. A year later, I applied again for a visa to Czechoslovakia and was turned down. I tried once more two years after that and again was refused. It was five years before I was allowed back inside that beautiful land, and meanwhile I had seen such persecution of Christians that Czechoslovakia, by contrast, seemed a place of freedom and liberty. Next time, Chapter 9 the foundations are laid.